And welcome to another Rejected Religion Spotlight. I'm Stephanie Shea. As my platform is interested in what is known as occulture, or how the occult is represented and portrayed in popular culture, I thought it might be interesting to have a look at a few recent series, in particular the Netflix series Archive 81 and the most recent season of Stranger Things, Season 4. I'm not going to be giving an in-depth a review of the show's plots or characters, as there are plenty of other channels here on YouTube that do just that. However, I will be discussing some of the concepts and ideas from, from these shows that can be found in the areas of the esoteric, uh, more specifically the occult, as there might be some viewers who might have some uh, vague idea of, of all of this or don't know anything about these references and would like to learn more about them. As I want to keep this video on the shorter side, I will only be highlighting these things and giving a general explanation or overview of the topics. There will be some discussion that could be considered spoiler material, so if you haven't seen the shows yet and you care about that, you should probably watch the shows first and then come back to this video. Lastly, the selected reference material I will be using for this video, which uh, is by no means exhaustive, will be listed in the description box. Okay, let's start with Archive 81. I personally enjoyed this show and found it to be packed with uh, all sorts of occult references. It's a shame that they're not renewing it for another season. Uh, while the story is fictional, some of the people, groups, and ideas that are presented in the show are very real, and it's those things that I'd like to highlight today. To start with a little context, the show centers around Dan Turner, an archivist in New York City who repairs and restores old films, cassettes, videotapes, and the like. He gets a request from the daughter of an old Hollywood director to try to restore a very rare and damaged old film from 1958 called The Circle. And this film is kind of an obsession for Dan. Shortly after that, Dan's boss asks him to restore a damaged video cassette for a wealthy client. This video was made by a university student called Melody Pendress in 1994, and Melody is the other main character in the show. The client was very pleased with Dan's work and reaches out to Dan directly with the offer of restoring a whole collection of videotapes that were damaged in a fire as part of a project that the company is doing. Melody was making a documentary in 1994 as her dissertation at a New York City apartment building known as The Visser, and she was staying in one of the apartments while filming. It's this building that burns down later on in the story, causing the damage to the videotapes. So while Melody in 1994 is filming for what she says is her dissertation project, and it's a real thing, she's actually looking for her mother, um, whom she doesn't remember because her mother abandoned her as a baby, leaving her in a Catholic church, and Melody thinks that her mother might have lived at the Visser. So while she's there, 
Melody meets a cast of very strange people doing very strange things. And Melody begins to think that they are all part of a creepy cult, as she calls it. From the first day, she keeps hearing a very eerie tune being hummed by multiple voices. And this tune has very adverse effects on her. And she begins to investigate, uh, filming everything as she does this to try to find out who and what is behind the bizarre goings on. The story unfolds to Dan while he's restoring and watching the videotapes. And due to a number of shocking events, Dan becomes more and more emotionally involved. And it's no longer just a job for him. As the story progresses, Dan and Melody also develop a connection to and with each other through their dreams. Now, this show is really loaded with occult references, so let's get into the main ones. I have nine to discuss. I'm going to take these in linear order from a historical perspective in order to highlight the progression of ideas and concepts throughout the centuries. The first reference is astrology and astronomy, or more specifically, celestial or astronomical magic. As Nitty and Nyhouse discussed in my last Spotlight interview, in ancient times, we're talking about Babylonian times, astrology and uh, astronomy were considered to be the same thing. Additionally, the domains of astrology and magic were difficult to separate, uh, as celestial magic involves the influence of heavenly bodies on people's physical lives, as if these celestial bodies had their own sort of will. In our present day, we still understand astrology as a system in which planets, stars, and other celestial phenomena hold a significance for earthly events, whether general or specific to a person. In the show, we see this played out with regard to the comet that is believed to be an omen and that would facilitate the thinning of the veils between worlds or dimensions, allowing the god slash demon Kalego to enter the earthly realm. Please refer to the works by Nyhaus, uh, Campion, and Hanegraaf for more information. Witchcraft is another reference made in the show, but interestingly enough, the witches in this story, called the Baldung, are the good guys who are trying to keep Kalego from entering uh, the world, the, the earthly dimension, so to speak. However, it is their grimoire, or book of magical spells, that was stolen and used in rituals by another group called the Voss Society in an attempt to bring Kalego into the earthly dimension. The topics of witchcraft and magic are far too broad and complex to briefly explain here, but it is important to mention them as they have been very influential uh, currents in history. I'll return to the Voss Society later in the video. The next reference is spiritualism and the practices associated with it. In the show, Melody participates in a seance led by a medium who channels messages from deceased spirits. The concept of the spirit world as being a real place was known before the origin of the spiritualist movement, uh, as seen in Swedenborgianism, mesmerism or animal magnetism, uh, transcendentalism, the Shakers and the Quakers. 
Uh, but we could say that as a greater cultural phenomenon that focused on communication with spirits, uh, spiritualism as such began in 1848 in upstate New York with the Fox Sisters. What started with spirit communication by means of rapping sounds and table tipping developed into seances with different types or styles of mediumship. And you had drawing and writing mediums, trance mediums, seeing mediums, so that they had certain types of visions, healing mediums, and psychometric readers who could disclose the content of letters in sealed envelopes. Some mediums could act as a conduit for whatever the controlling spirit wanted, known as impressional uh, mediums. Seances were popular social gatherings where people, especially after the Civil War in the United States, could contact their deceased loved ones and have proof of life after death. This empirical aspect is of great importance to spiritualists, and this also inspired the creation of the Society for Psychical Research that still exists today and has influenced the study of paranormal phenomena on a larger scale. Please refer to Asperm for more on the Society for Psychical Research, Gutierrez for more about spiritualism, and Albanese for how metaphysical religion in its broader forms has developed in the United States. As an aside, there is a documentary on HBO called um, No One Dies in Lilydale, and it's uh, I just recently watched it. It's about the oldest uh, spiritualist community in New York that has become a tourist attraction of sorts for those who are looking to communicate with the spirit world or for, for those who might be interested to have a little glimpse into that world. As I briefly mentioned just a few minutes ago, drawing and writing mediumship inspired some artists to offer their bodies as channels of spirit communication through means of visual imagery. In the show, these artists are called spirit receivers, and when looking at art history, one finds cases of real-life artists who functioned in this manner, called automatic writing or drawing. Two of these artists are Hilma of Klint and Georgiana Houghton. Hilma of Klint, uh, who lived between 1862 and 1944, was a Swedish artist who was heavily involved in spiritualism forming a group known as The Five, with four other women who received messages from spirits and produced automatic drawings. Later, Ofklint devoted a year of her time to work, along with her spirit leader, Amaliel, on abstract paintings, and abstract in the sense that um, they seem to be non-representational of, of particular um, objects. These paintings were called the Temple Series as a message to the human race. Her later work also depicts different planes of experience and what we could think of as abstraction. Georgiana Houghton, who lived from 1814 to 1884, was another mediumistic artist who worked with many different spirit guides to produce over 155 watercolor drawings. She is considered one of the pioneers in spirit art. These two women were largely ignored by art historians until recently. Spirit photography is also briefly seen in the show, and this too was a real practice within spiritualist circles. 
The new invention of photography was seen by spiritualists as the supreme form of objective evidence to document the existence of the spirit world. The photographic plate was thought to be able to capture images that the human eye could not see, but were nevertheless present. As science had confirmed the limitations of the human eye with the discovery of x-rays, infrared, and ultraviolet light, the presence of ghosts, auras, and other ethereal energies on photographs was also seen as scientific proof of a greater world around us. Please see Baudin and the catalog, The Spiritual in Art, plus the listed websites for more information about spirit photography and spirit art. In episode six, three real-life groups were briefly mentioned in passing, and I'd like to start with the Theosophical Society, as this movement arose in our historical timeline after spiritualism. I'll discuss the other two groups later on in this video. The Theosophical Society was established in New York City in 1875 by Helena Blavatsky, Henry Olcott, and William Judge. Blavatsky, an aristocrat and the primary spokesperson for the group, had previously practiced as a medium, but moved on to write her first book, Isis Unveiled, that describes an ancient wisdom tradition stemming from the Near East, and in her later work, The Far East, uh, these books teach about a spiritual evolution towards a transcendent and ultimate reality. And this worldview includes the concepts of reincarnation and karma, as well as spiritual beings known as Mahatmas, or spiritual masters, that help human beings in their spiritual evolution. The history of the Theosophical Society is far too broad, of course, to discuss in full here, uh, but suffice it to say, this was a very influential group in its time, and the society exists to this day, but in a lesser capacity from its heyday. In the show, the leader of the fictional Voss Society, Iris Voss, was compared to Blavatsky in kind of a joking way. Please see Hammer. Uh, Albanese, and Hannah Graf for more about the Theosophical Society. In my opinion, the fictional Voss Society that we see in the show is more likely based on ritual magic groups such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO for short. These groups were inspired by other fraternal orders such as the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons, and were created due to the desire for a ritual practice of occult philosophy and instead of simply a theoretical study of it. The Golden Dawn was established in 1887 by William Westcott, Samuel Mathers, and William Woodman. The group was set up as a hierarchy with initiate levels, or grades, based upon the system of the Freemasons, but as with the Theosophical Society, women were also allowed as members. Most of the members were well-educated and cultured people from artistic and professional circles. Like the Theosophical Society, spiritual advancement was key, but this took place under strict secrecy unlike the more open and democratic theosophists. Members of the Golden Dawn would undergo training at different levels in practices such as divination, tarot, astrology, geomancy, which is divination that interprets markings or patterns on the ground, 
working with uh, elemental beings, Enochian magic, astral projection, and spirit visions, just to name a few. Notable members of the Golden Dawn include W.B. Yeats, Arthur Edward Waite, and Alistair Crowley. Please see Silva and Gilbert for more about the Golden Dawn. The origins of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO, appear to be found around the late 1800s and early 1900s, and the group was founded by Carl Kellner, Franz Hartmann, and Theodore Rose as a result of unconventional Masonic activities. Now, while the group was modeled on European Freemasonry at its core, it also included rituals and practices taken from the teaching of other esoteric groups. And these other groups were, uh, for example, Martinist teachings and other teachings that came from the writings of Swedenborg. When Aleister Crowley took over the leadership of the group, he altered the core principles and reoriented these around his own magical system of Thelema. The OTO's higher degrees or levels include ritual magic of a sensual or intimate flavor, if you understand my meaning. I have to be careful with YouTube censorship of certain words, uh, but I think you get my drift. In the show, the Voss Society practiced rituals that include human sacrifice to give a horror element to the story, in my opinion, but that is primarily for the sensational, creepy vibe of the show, and it plays into the storyline that Melody's life is at risk for being a Baldung witch, even though she doesn't know this herself, and this is the reason her mother, herself a witch, abandoned uh, Melody at the Catholic Church in order to protect her daughter against the Voss Society. Uh, from a his historical perspective, though, the ritual magic groups I've mentioned here were not involved in practices such as human ritual sacrifice. The second real group briefly mentioned in the show was the Agape Lodge. This is actually in reference to the Agape Lodge number two, the Hollywood, California-based chapter of the OTO founded by Wilbert Talbot Smith in 1935. In 1942, Jack Parsons, famous for the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, was appointed the head of the lodge, and he moved the lodge to Pasadena, California. This group is probably most known for the magical endeavors of Jack Parsons, Marjorie Cameron, and L. Ron Hubbard, who later went, went on to found uh, Scientology. Parsons was concerned with the physical creation of the goddess Babylon, the figure seen in the biblical book of Revelations, by means of the quote-unquote intimate type of ritual magic, with Marjorie Cameron, known as the Babylon Working. The goal of this ritual was to create a female human messiah that would initiate a new era of love and freedom. Hubbard acted as a medium, translating messages from the goddess Babylon in the spirit realm. The lives and practices of Parson Cameron, Hubbard, and other members of the Agape Lodge, of course, can't be addressed in full in this video, but please check out the reference material if you'd like to know more. There's a lot to unpack there. 
It is the Hollywood location of the lodge in the 1930s that was most likely the reason this group was mentioned in the show, as this was one place the fictional Hollywood director of The Circle, that old film that I mentioned earlier, uh, this was one place that the director frequented, as as was related in the show. Please see Giudice, Goodrick Clark, Campion, Hedenborg White, and Urban for more information about the OTO, Parsons, Cameron, Hubbard, and the Agape Lodge. Lastly, uh, the third real group uh, briefly mentioned in the show was Mankind United. And I had to look this one up myself because I had not heard of this. Uh, This was a lesser known group that appears to have been formed by a man named Arthur Bell in California around 1936 in the middle of the Great Depression in the United States. Uh, In a nutshell, Mankind United's claims were the following. A great conspiracy made up of hidden rulers and money changers ruled the world and were responsible for war, poverty, and suffering. But another powerful and technologically advanced group called the Sponsors had formed in 1875 to combat this malevolent group of rulers. Arthur Bell claimed that the Sponsors were on the verge of making themselves known to the world and establishing a utopia based on universal employment with a four-day work week of four hours per day a financial credit system, and an artificial language. However, this would not happen until Mankind United could get the support of 200 million people. Only then would the sponsors step in, and within 30 days, the world would change for the better. Bell's book, titled Mankind United, functioned as the primary teaching text for the members. The group, however, failed to meet the sponsors' requirements, as there were only around 2,000 followers, if that. And these people were were required to work for the group's businesses for extremely long hours and mere pennies in payment, so nothing about four-day work weeks or four hours a day. And this left, of course, Arthur Bell to benefit financially with mansions, luxury apartments, and an extravagant Hollywood lifestyle. When the government began to investigate the group during World War II, the group incorporated as the Church of the Golden Rule in order to evade taxation. In 1951, Bell left the whole endeavor behind and the group disbanded. Again, this group was likely mentioned in the show due to the Hollywood connection. You can find links about this group in the description box. Okay, let's move now to the most recent season of Stranger Things. The main occult reference I'd like to discuss here is the phenomenon known as the Satanic Panic that spanned from the late 1970s to the early 1990s in the United States. Uh, it was it was in other areas of the world as well, but I'm focusing on uh, the developments in the United States for this video. What we understand to be Satanism is actually a modern literary and intellectual development, primarily found in French Romanticism of the 1850s and 1860s. 
Other currents, such as witchcraft and ritual magic, were later lumped into the category of Satanism with ideas including devil worship and black masses with blood sacrifice simmering in the background of American culture prior to the Second World War. A new factor came into play in the 1960s with the appearance of public groups such as the Church of Satan, the Temple of Set, the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which interestingly had its beginnings in Scientology, along with other currents such as Wicca. These groups became quite popular due to the ideas that they were purporting, such as rejecting social conformity, rebellion against indoctrination, individual autonomy and freedom. As such, these so-called satanic themes began to appear in rock music and especially heavy metal music. Additionally, other groups that arose in this time period were being viewed by society as being dangerous. Examples being Jim Jones's The People's Temple, The Manson Family, and Heaven's Gate although the mass deaths of the members didn't happen until later. I think with Heaven's Gate, they were considered dangerous because the uh, of the isolation of the members and the things that the members had to do to conform in their, in their group. Simultaneously, a change began to occur in American society around this same time with regard to the safety of children as the rate of abducted and murdered children began to significantly rise in the 1970s. In 1980, a book by the title Michelle Remembers was published that grabbed the attention of Americans. Uh, This book introduced the idea that a ritualized form of child abuse existed and that the groups or quote-unquote cults that were allegedly involved in, in this practice were satanic in nature. This book would be highly influential and would shape later narratives, including the idea that repressed memories of trauma could be recalled during therapy. The most infamous example of this moral panic, I think, can be found in the McMartin preschool case and trial that started in 1983 and ended in 1990, with all charges being dropped and no convictions being made due to the total absence of material evidence to support the claims of the accusers. Uh, Another interesting fact is that the original accuser was hospitalized with acute uh, schizophrenia during the seven-year-long trial. The safety of children was also allegedly being threatened not only by music, but by role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons. As we see in Stranger Things, this game is played in Season 1 by the young group of boys, and in Season 4, we see the game still being played. Uh, But in Episode 6, the Dungeons & Dragons group called Hellfire Club, and the members also being involved in their own heavy metal garage band, so we have the music connection there too, is now being accused of being a type of satanic cult due to the mysterious deaths of some high school students. Now, I'd like to look at some of the reasons why real-life people back then thought that something like this could be the case. The game first appeared in the 1970s in the midst of the concern about the cults, as I mentioned, 
And as this game required a lot of time from its players, with many players becoming very devoted to the storylines and the characters, some people outside of the the players uh, and the people involved in, in enjoying the game began to suspect that there was somehow something cult-like about this game. Patricia Pulling, founder of the group BAD, an acronym for Bothered Against Dungeons and Dragons, accused the game of being a hazard to the player's mental health after her son had taken his own life. She also believed the game was part of a larger satanic conspiracy, a claim that the new Christian right was purporting at that time. As Dungeons and Dragons includes fantasy characters, including wizards and demons, the new Christian right of that period was convinced that occult themes such as witchcraft uh, was being spread by this game, leaving the players open to demonic influence. Bad claimed that this game was masquerading as entertainment, but was actually a dangerous cult. The game was a perfect scapegoat of sorts for those who were concerned about growing occult influences in society, as well as the vulnerability of children and young people. A common view held by many in the 1980s, to which I can personally attest, having grown up uh, in that time uh, in the Midwestern United States Bible Belt, was that dabbling in the occult could lead to serious problems, such as demon possession, or to violence in the name of Satan. Now, while it can't be denied that disturbed individuals have committed violent acts against others and themselves in the name of Satan— a demon, or a god of some kind. What is lacking here with this uh, phenomenon of the satanic panic is hard proof concerning the claims. As we see in the show, the entity causing the problems is actually the person known as One, but the kids use the name of the D&D game's demon Vecna as a signifier for his destructiveness while the paranormal aspect is seen as being a very real part of the happenings, the demon is a human being in this case. I think that when tragic things happen, especially to children, people often want the answer, you know, the, the big why questions. Especially when people are dealing with their feelings of sadness, of fear, and loss, either on a personal level or on a level of more general unease about the perceived changes that are happening in society. Of course, we must always remain sensitive and aware of the larger issues that are at play. It's, it's never just one thing. The satanic panic is, as you can tell uh, from just listening to the little bit that I've, I've shared here, this is a complex topic. Uh, there are many, many different factors at play here that lead to uh, the reason why people had this, this idea to begin with and this moral panic arose. And I'm only scratching the surface here. But if you're interested to read more, please check out uh, Peterson, Laycock, Jenkins, Burbagol, Partridge, and Victor for more about the occult in music, Satanism in general, the satanic panic, crime associated with the satanic panic, and the moral panic over role-playing games. 
Well, I think that's enough for now. I hope you've enjoyed this little look at the occult references of these two Netflix shows. Please leave your feedback and any questions you might have for me in the comment section below, as I'd love to hear from you. Also, if you liked this type of video, please let me know and leave a like so that the YouTube algorithm will start to notice too. Additionally, if you'd like me to make a more detailed video, including more discussion about the academic literature that I used as reference material for this video, please let me know in the comments. I'm happy to do a deep dive, but as I had gotten some feedback from some listeners requesting more basic ex explanations of ideas and concepts, I thought I'd start with a shorter form first. But please, share your thoughts and suggestions with me. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Thank you.